to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, the disciples had three years of teaching. They had three years of sitting under the ministry of the Lord Jesus. They must have known these things inside out. They had an inside training that they were now to confer and to pass along to every convert. And they were to do, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so there is an obedience that is required. Now, let's be very clear. This obedience doesn't save you, nor does baptism save you. All the water in the world will not save a sinner's soul if there is not the inward work of grace. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher, and today we are moving into the mode of the Protestant Reformation. We have Luther lesson number one, and our message today is on grace. You may have heard of that doctrine of sola gratia, that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone. And of course, it is this matter of grace, the mercy that flows from the heart of our infinite God through his blessed Son that we receive mercy from the Lord. We begin now with our Luther lesson for today. Just a couple of minutes as we set before you something of the early life and the stand that Martin Luther took for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It is a wonderfully strange thing that the man who was driven to the monastery by the fear of God became the liberator of multitudes of monks to truly worship God. In July 1505, the young Martin Luther was trudging along a country road near the village of Stotterheim when he was caught by a thunderstorm. A bolt of lightning knocked him to the ground. When he arose, he vowed in terror, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. In the providence of God, the man who would become the Protestant reformer had to enter the monastery and personally suffer the shame as well as his powerlessness to grant peace to troubled hearts. Most monks were blind to their own sin and to the folly of the system, banning men from the light of day to languor in further darkness. In his table talk, Luther stated, In Italy, the monasteries are very wealthy. There are about three or four monks to each. The surplus of their revenues goes to the Pope and his cardinals. The wealth of monasteries were always at the expense of the poor people in their localities. The monks begged and expected to be provided for without any labor toward the people. The greed of monks knew no bounds in medieval Europe, and we fear it hasn't changed much in more modern time. Again, in his table talk, Luther gave an instance of such greed. A gentleman being at the point of death, a monk from the next convent came to see what he could pick up, and said to the gentleman, Sir, will you give so-and-so to our monastery? The dying man, unable to speak, replied by a nod of the head, whereupon the monk, turning to the gentleman's son, said, You see, your father makes us this bequest. The son said to the father, Sir, is it your pleasure that I kick this monk down the stairs? The dying man nodded as before, 
and the sun forthwith drove the monk out the doors. In pre-Reformation times, the countries of Europe were filled with monasteries, with droves of monks infesting the land. They claimed vast estates, which contributed nothing to the treasury of their respective countries, but either they ate the gain themselves, or forwarded their excess gain to the Pope of Rome. Henry VIII had his ministers ban monasteries, and had them emptied when he broke with Rome. Why become a monk? The man who was later to revolt against monasticism became a monk for exactly the same reason as thousands of others, namely, in order to save his soul. The immediate occasion of his resolve to enter the cloister was the unexpected encounter with death on that sultry day of 1505. He was then 21 and a student of the University of Erfurt. As he returned to school after a visit with his parents, a bolt of sudden lightning struck him to the earth. In that single flash, he saw the denouement of the drama of existence. There was God, the all-terrible, Christ, the inexorable, and all the leering fiends springing from their lurking places in pond and wood that with sardonic cachinations they might seize his shock of curly hair and bolt him into hell. It was no wonder that he cried out to his father's saint, patroness of mines, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk.
just a moment to pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this wonderful subject of God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Thank you for each one here tonight that is living on grace, on the joy of salvation, full, free, pardon that is complete, and that we're depending on the gift of God, the grace of our loving Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can enter into this tonight, and we pray that you'll help us in your word, and that there will be grace to preach, that there will be spiritual power and unction, and also grace to hear with rejoicing, and to receive thy word by faith. We ask this earnestly through our name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We read together Second uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and tonight we're going to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. 7, 8, and 9. These are really a compendium of the gospel. If you had no other portion of Scripture and you were given Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7, 8, and 9, you would have a passport to know, to understand, and rejoice in the sufficiency and the power of the gospel. God has a great purpose of displaying His grace. And we all have that habit. There are car shows where uh, the industry likes to display the latest and the best, the most luxurious, and they put them on display. And of course, they twirl them around in the dazzling lights, and they make their car really shine. And then there are air shows, and they do the same with aircraft and jets. And then in the tech world, well, companies like Apple, they have the day when they put their technology on display. And what a presentation they make. These verses in Ephesians 2 tell us that God is also in the business of displaying His riches. And His riches are not the material, they are not the things of man, they are not the things even that are created. They are the grace of God. And both now and in eternity to come, God is going to take His church, the bride of Christ, and He is going to display her in all her beauty, not for the intrinsic worth of people, but to exalt His own glorious name. We have to recognize tonight that God is a jealous God. There is no other. And as the Creator of all things, and as the Redeemer of His people, He is jealous over the saints. We read in the book of Zechariah that He rejoices and sings over them day and night. And in heaven to come, God is going to put His people on display, and there He's going to show the endless, exquisite nature of His grace and kindness. Now, I have four points tonight on these, on these verses. In verse 7, you have the special purpose of grace, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. 
And then in verse 8, you have the saving power of his grace. By grace are ye saved. And you'll notice it's something that's done. Done, done, done. Absolutely, completely done. And it is done by the power of God. And then there's also the single instrument of grace, faith. For ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. And then if we have time, we'll get to it. There is the single pronouncement, and that is, it's the gift of God. It's a single announcement, and it is final. So let's begin with the special purpose of grace. And we see here in verse 7 that it is to display the glory of God. Let's remember tonight that grace was God's idea. It was never spawned in the mind or heart of man. There never was a sinner that ever thought or planned the work of the cross or redemption. And it certainly wasn't the devil's idea because he hates the cross. No, we know that grace is the outflow of the very nature of God's goodness. And it is the very attribute of God's kindness to sinful, undeserving men. And, of course, sinners don't think that they need grace. So it didn't come out of their hearts. They rejected. Who, me? I'm good enough. You remember my definition of a Pharisee? And I was able to Uh, speak to this last Sunday in the Toronto congregation. I said to the boys and girls, the definition of a Pharisee is, as far as I can see, there's nothing wrong with me. And that's the state of men's hearts. You invite them to a gospel meeting, why should I go? I'm as good a person as any other. I pay my bills. I don't owe any money to anyone. I'm fair and square. I'm an upright citizen. And men think they don't need grace. They don't need mercy. And of course, Satan works very hard to keep them blind in their natural state. He is the God of this world, and he blinds the heart of the natural man, lest the light of the glory of God should shine in unto them. Now, notice something here, that this purpose of God shining his riches of grace It's not just for a day, nor for our lifetime, and not even till the end of the world, but it's going to be for all eternity. Now, to understand that, we'll need to read verse 6 and 7 together, that he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, And so this is not just about church for an hour. This is not that God will be pleased with what you do as you take your seat in the pew. This is what God is going to do for all eternity. And he will take the diamond of his people and he will display it over and over and over and over again endlessly for all eternity. And so it's not just through our lifetimes. Now, in that period, angels will be awed. 
God has never done a thing to save an angel. All the fallen angels are in hell. They will never be in heaven. Elect angels were kept from falling, and so they have never sinned. But sinners, we who have rebelled against God, taken his name in vain, and are deserving of the damnation, the Lord is going to display us before all his living creatures. Old Testament saints will be there. Abraham, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the servants of God from the Old Testament. And the New Testament saints will be there. And they will all enter into this spirit of praise to the one who has redeemed us. Now, I want you to get into the wording here in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches. The origin of that word would simply mean beyond expectation, over and above. Who could have thought that God would do such a thing with sinful men? And it's all about God receiving the praise. We receive the grace, but God receives the praise. And he will take his people and demonstrate his grace over and over and over again. And so if you're a Christian tonight, you are called to show forth his praises. A new life, a new creature, a new walk, a new talk, new godliness, new desires— in prayer, in fellowship with God, but it's only the beginning of the eternal purpose of God in the life of a convert. We move then to the saving power of grace, and that's verse 8. For by grace are ye saved. Now, there's two thoughts in that little statement, are ye saved. Well, that it's either only grace saves, or that grace saves totally. You get my point? That little statement, for by grace are ye saved, uh, that it's only by grace that you can be saved, or that grace saves totally. And I'm going to hang my hat on the latter, that that little statement means that by grace are ye saved absolutely, completely. Now, it is true that only grace saves. Can you tell me what else will save the soul of a sinner? Can you tell me what else will bring uh, one who is a child of the devil and of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son and give them a perfect righteousness for heaven? There's only one way, and that is grace. God must do it himself, and God must do it by his power. And it's all because of sin's ruin, and you'll find that in, in verse 1, dead in trespasses and sins. And, of course, a corpse can produce nothing. And that was our lost condition. That was our terrible state when we were without a Savior, dead in trespasses and in sins. Uh, we were not only 
uh, ruined but deformed. All our faculties were gone. The hearing of the ear cannot understand spiritual things. The eyes are put out, cannot see nor comprehend the glory of God. And then we were in sin's bondage, under death, a slave in every which way. These are descriptions of you and me when we were without Christ. But now are ye saved. And grace saves totally. And the Christian's testimony is absolute confidence in the gospel's power. Now, no other religion can present this kind of confidence. The Roman Catholic cannot stand up and say, I'm sure of heaven today. Why? Because that confidence is not given, that assurance. And, of course, they die. They need the last rites. And even they pray for the dead that their souls may be brought out of purgatory. What about a Jew? Can a Jew die with the absolute assurance of eternal life? Well, without Christ and without the righteousness of Christ and without the fulfillment of the whole work of the Messiah. And if they die ignorant of the Messiah, how can they say that they are sure of eternal life? Uh, a Muslim, can a Muslim die with absolute confidence uh, that they are going to be in what they call their heaven with their God and so on? Well, of course, it's a, a, a religion uh, that is in bondage to start with. And then there's apostate Protestantism. If a man or woman is going to a church where the Bible is denied and where the deity of Christ is denied, can they be offered assurance of salvation? They don't even use the word saved. And here is this confidence that is the believers. And the gospel pronounces that believers are saved. Now think of who Paul was writing to when he made this statement. They were Ephesians. They were living in Asia Minor. And they were Gentiles. They were people who were outside the whole historic uh, program of God. And they are a people who were blinded by sin, and they had never known God. And they are now first-generation Christians. They have believed on the Lord Jesus. And the apostle says to them here in this verse uh, 8, But for by grace are ye saved. Now, I want you to go back to chapter 2 and to verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. So Paul here is giving them their pedigree, and he's laying out who they were, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That sounds like loss, doesn't it? That reads like you have, you're outside, there's no way. But, he begins verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, 
ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What a difference the atonement makes. What a difference the cross work of Jesus makes. What a difference when you come as a guilty sinner and you say, Lord, save me. Then you can be pronounced that by grace are ye saved. And so this is the saving power of grace. I really appreciate you taking your time to join with us here as we bring the message of the gospel day by day here on Let the Bible Speak, the radio ministry of our Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale. And I hope that I can be of some personal help to you. Perhaps you have heard the message today and realize that you need to be saved. You need to be made right with God and reconciled to God through the gospel because your works certainly cannot save you. Then I would be delighted to talk with you further if you wish to give me a call or send me an email. Just to wrap up a few of the points that I noted in the message, uh, the opposite of grace is meritorious works. Grace is God's free gift. But many and majority of people think that they can get to heaven by their own works that they need to work their way. I also said in the message that God must do it himself by his own power. Well, that means that we just surrender and we come to receive the gift of grace, the gift of salvation that is full and free. And it is not until we surrender to God's gift that we can possibly receive it. While we think that we can do it ourselves, we can find our own way to heaven, then we will not be saved. I also mentioned that sin has left mankind deformed. We are deaf to the message of God, blind to his truth, and we need, therefore, new life. And this is what Christ came into the world to do. He gives us ears to hear, and he gives us spiritual eyes to see. And again, I want to call you and invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, and this is Ian Golliher. In this closing minute of the program, let me share with you my burden to take the gospel to the unsaved, even those who will never go to church or listen to a Bible program. So, I have written a number of gospel leaflets and called them, Let the Bible Speak to Your Heart. On the front cover, I set out a Bible passage. The one in my hand is on John 10, where the Lord Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd. I think it's important to get the Word of God into the hands of the reader. On the inside pages of this four-side leaflet, I lay out the gospel in clear terms and explain the parable of Jesus calling himself the Good Shepherd. I explain substitutionary atonement and call the reader to repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus for cleansing in his blood. I then put in a QR code for people to scan to listen to a full audio message on the Lord Jesus as the Good Shepherd. 
The back page has a few interesting quotes, like the one by Hannah Moore. No man ever repented of being a Christian on his deathbed. Then I give information on the local radio station, church online ministry, and my phone number for people to call for pastoral help. These can be used by churches, by families, to give to neighbors and friends. If you could use these leaflets, then call me at 604-897-2040 or go to our website, ltbs.ca, to see a sample which you can print out from the site. Thank you for listening today. Remember to send for the Let the Bible Speak radio leaflet.